Trinity Church, welcome on this Sunday morning, the 9th of August. Hey, wherever you are, would you just take a minute and thank the worship team with me this morning? What a great job in leading us and helping just our hearts be preoccupied with God. That's probably one of my favorite definitions of the word worship and what it is. From my vantage point, as they were just singing that great song, I loved um, just kind of, I was watching David Sepulveda on the drums and just watching him just kind of not only be in tune and on time, but just to see just the way that he was just kind of doing his thing in a way that I know was to be pleasing to God. And so I just know that's true of the whole team, but it was just kind of a fun thing to watch him. So thanks, Solomon. Well, we are really glad that you're here with us today. We uh, continue in a series called Critical Convictions. And if you have a Bible today, we're actually just going to kind of be in one place our, most of our time. It's in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. So if you want to find your way there, also want to encourage you, whether you might have printed up notes in advance or whether you are um, kind of using those off of our app, I've told you that's one of my favorite new things about our app is just digital notes that you can use. I found out when I was using them a couple weeks ago when Hilke was preaching that it does not have autocorrect, so you have to learn how to spell all over again. So make sure that you're doing that, but I'd love to have you have those out. You can track with us and just be able to uh, be a part of what we're doing. So Acts 15, notes may be ready to go, and we'll continue in week two of this uh, new series. I want to especially say thank you to those of you who are with us out on the lawn or who joined us online last night at our all-church meeting. I know that the elders were very grateful, myself and the rest of the group, the board, of just having the opportunity to provide clarity to the questions that you have. And so thank you very much uh, for joining us and being a part of that. I look forward to good, good things coming in the future. So thanks for being a part. I want to give you a couple updates and some yay God kinds of things. The first one is this, is that we talked about, um, see if I can get my clicker to work. There we go. We talked about uh, last week inviting you as a church family to join the staff. We just know that in this season, <clears throat> it is hard not to be together and hard to be distant. And so we thought, hey, let's start doing some things that create opportunities all throughout the week. We realize 9 a.m., Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday might not work for many of you, but it was great to see a few of you out with us this week. We just meet under the pavilion right here in the main part of the campus. We are standing or sitting socially distant from each other, but praying together, drawing our hearts together towards the Lord. And it was a sweet time. I was able to be there two of the three days this last week and was really grateful for that. So please join us if you can, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 9 to 9.30 under the pavilion. We're just praying for three things, praying for our church, praying for our community, praying for our country, and we'd love to have you join us. We've had a great partnership with Forest Home over the years, and uh, one of the things, and I appreciate even Doug Richards alluded to it last night in the all-church meeting, it would just be about a month from now, we would normally be preparing for our fall reunion up at Forest Home. They informed us just a few weeks ago that they had to cancel all September activities just because things with COVID are still not freeing them up to do that. So on the one hand, that was a real bummer, and I wanted to communicate that to you so you would just have expectations. But on the other hand, when I was in an email conversation with one of their leaders up there, he told me about a new opportunity that is linked on our uh, website to a, a family serve opportunity where you as a family could go up, you could dedicate uh, one to four days 
and uh, be there to help them with some projects that they're working on now and the end of summer and fall for next summer's uh, summer camps when kids will be coming from all over, family camps that'll be going on. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, the great news is it's free. And though they can't provide any food, you get to stay in the nicest accommodations that they have at Forest Home, a place I've stayed a couple times called Cedar Ridge. And every one of these units have their own kitchens. So you can bring all your own food, take care of all of that. A great opportunity if your family just wants to get away into a little bit of a cooler environment here at the end of the summer. And so we'd really encourage you to uh, take them up on that. You'll see a link on our website that'll take you to the information page on that and answer any of the questions that you have. So we look forward to that with you. Well, we're going to continue on in a series that I think is just so absolutely needed and timely. And I'm excited that we got to begin it together a little bit last week, and we'll kind of take another step forward. It really is consistent with our denomination's mantra. If you know much about the evangelical free church, you'll know that you'll hear this phrase often, that we major on the majors. And in that, that not only means that we hold as convictions things that we believe the Bible is so clear on and, and holds would have us hold to that same degree of, of value and concern, but what also it gives, it provides a lot of opportunity to have diversity in the minors and to love each other well and still be in fellowship. So it's one of my favorite things about us. Well, in order to major on the majors, that means we also have to have a disciplined avoidance to not get caught up and to allow minor things to have more priority and more significance than they deserve. So within that, uh, that's what we're kind of working on in this series. I said it last week, I'm not going to tell you how to think. I'm not going to tell you this should be your majors, these should be your minors, but I want to give you a framework. I want to give you a grid so that you can begin to develop that for yourself and really know that even according to the Word of God like we saw last week, all ideas are not created equal. Here's kind of the, the rails that we started with last week. We said issues that have varying degrees of biblical clarity or based on scripture are essential to our faith compared to those that we can have healthy disagreement about, issues that fall into categories like these. Last week, we talked about things that are worth dying for. And as we unpacked that, we saw really two powerful ideas that we had said theological ideas that we believe are worth dying for are in our churches and in our denominations statement of faith. And at the end of the service, we just kind of walked through those. And you realized as you read those with me last week that we're like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Those are the essentials of our faith that we want to hold, hold dearly to. And within that, though, the other thing that we looked at last week was not only the theological majors, but we saw the biblical imperative majors. And we saw time and time again that loving each other Loving God, but loving each other, this is what the Bible teaches us matters most. Over all these things, put on love. So that, that was really important. Today we get to this next topic, really important for us right now in the season of our church, is what are the things we're dividing over? Not only from other denominations or, or other maybe churches that you may or may not want to be a part of, but even within our own church. What are the things that we should hold together for and maybe the things we need to think about? What does division look like? So that's going to be an important topic. And then next week, things to debate about. And finally, we'll wrap up with things to decide on. That'll be our, our trajectory as we move forward. So I'm excited that you're here with us today and that we get to dive in. I would say the issues that we're facing at Trinity, this topic today is of the greatest import. 
Sadly, some have divided over and left due to relational conflict or fallout. And we'll actually see more about that at the very end of the message today and what God's word would give us in terms of a narrative. Others have divided over or left due to philosophical differences of how we do ministry or how important it is or not for us to engage in things like the Great Commission here locally in our own lives. That's not addressed in this passage, but what we know is often in churches that happens. Others have divided over or left over concerns about theological issues that to them have enough clarity that they're not able to continue on uh, with this congregation. That's it. That was at risk in the passage we're going to look at today. Your Bibles are open to Acts 15, and we're going to see you're going to be amazingly impressed with how the leadership of the, the, this, what we call this Jerusalem Council meets together to really be able to find not only a direction, not only a path, but to do it in love. And we're going to see how God's glorified in the unity that we can walk away with when we treat each other that way. It's indeed something I need, something we all need right now. Here's our now what statement for today uh, as we move forward. Because being willing to divide from brothers and sisters, so remember we said this last week, this kind of area of dividing over, it's not so much a question of is someone truly in the faith, it's a question of, well, these issues are so big though, can we have fellowship? Because being willing to divide from other brothers or sisters is so significant, consider what God's word speaks to with that level of clarity before you break fellowship. Here's number one in your notes today. Don't add any additional requirements to salvation other than by grace through faith. Don't add any additional requirements to salvation other than by grace through faith. Let me give you this narrative. We'll see the context of why we're even talking about this. We're in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much, whoops, I think I missed a verse. That's right. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test, try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. 
All right, a lot going on. Let's kind of talk about this narrative and this um, whole context of, of what is going on in Acts 15. The book of Acts and, and this narrative really shows that God is up to a new thing. Everything in Acts is fresh. It was this beginning of the church, and Jesus had ascended to the Father, and his, his apostles, these ones who were these delegates that were going to lead and then demonstrate who Jesus was to others who would then take this message of Jesus literally around the world. It was that group of people who were giving leadership to a brand new fledgling thing called the church. And so within that, there's a lot of newness going on. And what we see in Acts is often a response of one of two ways. Either people are growingly flexible or they become growingly stiff-necked. You might remember that term even from the former covenant, a stiff-necked people. I don't want to be flexible. I don't want to bend. I want to keep doing it my way. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see how that was not only demonstrated by looking at the Word of God together in terms of understanding that God was doing a new thing, but because this was new territory, the testimony of vetted leaders in this early church was also going to be of key importance. And that's what you saw when we just began reading in Acts 15. The church at Antioch is really the place where things begin, and it was a wonderful church, multi-ethnic, multi-cultural community that had Jesus in common, but nearly nothing else. Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female, they were all composite, keeping the majors the majors. They were majoring on this idea that God had loved them, shown him that deeply through the person of Jesus, and that that love not only united them, but gave them motivation to want to go and share that great love with others around them. It was what our mission statement, that's why I love Trinity's mission statement, that they were indeed a people rooted in Jesus, reaching their worlds. In Acts 11, so if we go back a few chapters, in Acts 11, the Jerusalem church heard about what was going on in Antioch, and they were just confused a little bit, like, how is it that Gentiles are coming to Jesus? So they did a, a good thing. They said, let's send someone like Barnabas, someone trusted and someone that we absolutely have confidence in, let's send him to go find out what was going on. And when you go back and read Acts 11, you see Barnabas show up, and he's just blown away. He is seeing God on the move. He's seeing lives be transformed. And what he does is he goes to get uh, Paul over in Tarsus, brings Paul back, and Barnabas and Paul have this great season of ministry, just being able to equip that group of people, be able to continue to love and teach them, and are even sent out by them to go on one of the first missionary journeys. So that's, that's kind of how that happens. So that had happened in Acts 11. Acts 15, they heard back from Barnabas, great things are happening in Antioch, but there were some in Jerusalem, back to that stiff-necked approach that did not think this was great, or at least had still significant questions. So they send, there are some undesignated delegates, not like Barnabas, who go on their own, and when they show up, they show up to this amazingly fresh, robust, beautiful uh, expression of the church, and they begin saying, you cannot be a Christian unless you've been circumcised. I love Andy Stanley's take on this in his recent book, Irresistible. This is how he puts it. He says, for men, that meant salvation by surgery, circumcision, to which they must have thought, somebody should have told us about this before we signed up. Imagine how that would play out in the 21st century church. Honey, you and the kids go on into the service. I'll be waiting in the car. Those presenting this requirement, they could never understand how their men's ministry was so poorly uh, demonstrated in participation, so poorly attended. 
So when Paul and Barnabas are sent back to Jerusalem to really see if these were men that were delegated and truly sent by the Jerusalem church or not, they come back and they want to be able to share this is really what is going on in Antioch and really give an updated report. And what they find is they hear really a fuller picture. And this is a fascinating thing. In the Gospels, the Pharisees are often really the bad guys. And we've talked about that before. The bad guys in the sense of they, they were threatened by Jesus's uh, just demonstration of grace and truth. And were the ones who ultimately were responsible, humanly speaking, for his death. But some of the Pharisees in the early, in the early beginning of the church, they actually realized we've been desperately wrong. And they really do put their faith in Jesus. Even early on, we saw where was Jesus uh, entombed was in Nicodemus's, or in, um, yeah, in, in the tomb. And as a result, Nicodemus was from one of the Pharisee parties. So there were some who really realized we've missed it. Jesus was someone who really was someone that we needed to put our faith in. So they realized that on the backside, of, um, of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And then as a result, now what they want to do is they want to say, we believe in Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus the law. And so when Paul and Barnabas come into this setting and they realize this is really a significant problem, this is something that's going to cause great division because what they are seeing the Spirit of God doing in people's lives up in Antioch is absolutely inconsistent with what this Jerusalem church, or at least this part of the Jerusalem church, thinks has to happen. The pathway, as we think about this, in the past, there was a pathway for non-Jewish people to become a part of the Jewish community. It was called someone becoming a proselyte, someone who would kind of set aside their Gentile background and really embrace not only the law, but the community of the Jewish people. And that's what these Christians from the Pharisee party had, had basically come to believe, is that's how God was still working. That really what Gentiles could be in the church is that they were going to be enfolded into the law. They would need to be circumcised. All these things would need to be added. That was the confusion that they were having. And Paul and Barnabas saw God in the move and none of those things were important. And that's what they were saying. This, this was the conflict that needed to be talked about. So within that, now here we are 2,000 years later, and not many people in the groups that you and I are doing life with are having this contention, right? These are not the conversations that you and I have necessarily every day. But even though the issues are different, I'd say this, any issue that rises to the top of saying something like this, you have to do blank, or you can't do blank and be a Christian, that's what this issue was really about. That's what was going on in Acts 15. And you can see why that would be a significant enough issue to talk about, is this something that we need to maybe divide over because it's so significant that we can't just kind of agree to disagree. Question to you, have you ever been challenged to think about that before? What is essential to someone and what they would need to do to be made right with God through Jesus? Um, maybe it is for some people anyways, there are some groups or churches or individuals who would say that you have to use a certain translation of the Bible to be someone who's considered a Christian. Others would say that you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Others would say that you have to have a young earth view of creation, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. These are all issues that some people think are essential. It's Jesus plus how you believe or how you act according to those things. 
I'll never forget, I was a senior in high school, and I was visiting a youth group on a Sunday morning. And I remember the youth pastor, it was a large group, about 100 students in the room, and I remember him having a whiteboard up on the, screen, up on the stage. And I remember him asking the question, this is what he said. He said, so let's start today. What I wanna know, I wanna help us think through, let's boil it down. What is it that you have to do? How do you have to respond? What do you have to be in order to be someone who's truly saved? What's essential to being a Christian? And somebody said, you know, receiving Jesus as your savior. And so he turned around and wrote that on the board, but it didn't stop there. And there were numerous, you know, thoughts that came up. By the time he was done, he had about 15 or 20 things that were up on the board about things that were essential. He'd framed the question, what is the basics? What is the essentials of being someone who's a follower of Jesus? And as he did that, he kind of gets to the end, the hands all kind of go down. And, and then he looks around and he says, so is this what you're saying? You're saying, unless you have this belief, you really aren't going to heaven? And students began to look at each other and go, well, I, no, maybe not. Maybe that's not that critical. And he'd say this over here, if, if you don't have this action or behavior, then you can't be someone who's in the family of God. Oh, maybe that's not true. And he just would walk his way through each one. And by the time he got done, what was center in the middle of his board was Jesus. I'll never forget that. That was a long time ago. It was a long time since I've been a senior in high school. But I remember that day kind of just sitting there and taking that in and realizing Jesus is at the center of it all. And Jesus alone is what makes us right with God. In the, I told you on our website, I have an article linked there from a seminary professor of mine, Dr. Gary Brashears. And in his article, he suggests that the reasons why we even have various evangelical denominations in the first place is the things that have caused us to divide. Groups of Jesus followers who had the majors in common, so we weren't talking about people who didn't see Jesus as the core and the cornerstone of our salvation, but they found that they were out of alignment on some other issues that were so significant that they couldn't work together as the, a local body of Christ or even regionally. I remember for me as a youth pastor, one of the first challenges that I had was in a, when I was up in Oregon, I was working at a great network of local youth pastors in our little town and probably about seven, eight churches that would work together on major events we would do, or even just times of worship and praise together. And as I was in that process, I remember considering one of the churches that was in this group, a really great youth pastor who'd done amazing things in our town. But I just remember thinking about, now wait a second, you're part of a denomination, at least denominationally, that really doesn't believe in the eternal security of someone's faith. They believe that if you live or act in a certain way that you can at once have saving faith but then lose it. And that to me was one of these kind of divide over issues. It, it wasn't as though this church said, hey, put your faith in Buddha and we're still trying to have a relationship. It wasn't that. They would still put your, say, put your faith in Jesus but there was something about that idea of potentially losing your salvation that I thought that is a big deal to me and it's a big part of my understanding of what being a part of the family of God means. So I remember having some inner consternation over that and at one point I went over and talked to him just one one on one, and I said, hey, I just have to ask you a question. I'm, I'm really not trying to be divisive, but I really want to understand your take. I know kind of what your denomination believes on this idea of eternal security. I want to know kind of what you think. And you know what he said without even any hesitation? Oh, I, neither me nor anyone on our staff even believe that. 
<laughs> I, I kind of laughed. I thought, well, that's an interesting thing that you're a part of a church of that denomination then. And we had a great laugh over it, and it wasn't an issue moving forward. And it goes to show you then, rather than assuming that people might have a certain position, we need to go and talk to them and have a good conversation. But that's what it's been like in my ministry world. That's one of a few examples I could give of how do we know how we can work together maybe with other local churches or even within our own body. This entire topic regarding what kinds of issues need to be in agreement and which topics can we agree to disagree has really bubbled up to the top in, recent in this recent season of such great division. There are some people here at Trinity Church and other people in other churches all over our area who are struggling with and even potentially dividing over whether they should defy the governor's orders and meet indoors. Now, you can tell for the fact that we are empty in this room today. You are watching online and we'll be together out on the lawn later on tonight that that's something we have chosen at this point to abide by. And I want to tell you this, the reason that we're even, we addressed this issue last night in our all-church meeting, because we know that many at Trinity would see Dr. John MacArthur in a very high light, and he is an incredible Bible expositor, there's no question. But I have to tell you that our pastors uh, and our directional team and our elders read thoroughly through his article. And I would just tell you this, this is what I told them the short version. After reading it, I said, I absolutely agree with everything Dr. MacArthur has said. If the only way that the church could meet was in a large auditorium altogether. And the simple point is that there are churches like Trinity that are saying, we wish we could meet in that environment as well, but because of health and safety concerns, and even because when is the day when we will cross the line in civil disobedience, we just don't believe this is the time and this is the issue. So what I love is that our minds are working. Our directional team is going to be meeting tomorrow. I was telling some of you last night out on the lawn after the all-church meeting, we are beginning to kind of think in some new creative ways. If this is going to be our pattern for a while, what other areas of creativity can we bring to both doing things more online and more outdoors to be able to minister to more people? So be looking for that. Uh, I think times are coming when you're going to hear some neat ideas that we're starting to work on right now. In the rest of the passage that we saw, we saw Peter, Barnabas, and Paul all get up and tell firsthand accounts of how God is on the move and, and working in Gentile lives. So that's the two sides kind of of the argument so far. Let's continue forward in your notes. Number two, because salvation isn't something we designed, we shouldn't make it more difficult than God does. Because salvation isn't something we designed, we shouldn't make it more difficult than God does. Here's the next part in our passage, Acts 15, 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, this is James again, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath." 
All right, so after basically the case has been made on both sides, both groups kind of getting to be able to share the Christians who come from the Pharisee group, you've got to, Gentiles have to embrace the law. Peter, Barnabas, Paul saying, absolutely not. God is bringing them to faith in Jesus alone, just like he did for us. James is kind of put in this position. James, this is the James who is the half-brother of Jesus. What that means, all of Jesus' ministry, James did not believe that his brother was who he said he was. It was after Jesus' death and resurrection that James, finally the scales came off and he realized Oh my God, my goodness, I have been all my life living next to the Messiah and not put my faith in him. So he comes to this place of saving faith, and as a result, um, he actually is elevated in the leadership of the Jerusalem church. He's kind of the spokesperson in this relationship, and he kind of comes to a point after we've kind of had this debate and conversation, now let's come to some decisions. And he shares what you just read. One of the things that you and I would have read right over is a word that he used, a small Greek word that we wouldn't think much of even if we understood what it meant, but on top of it, it's what the people hearing would have understood. Look in your notes. The Greek word that James uses for people, the word laos, it's a people, a tribe, a nation, was commonly used of the Jews, but never for the Gentiles. When he was saying that God has called a people of his very own from the Gentiles, those in that kind of forum that day would have heard that and thought, whoa, wait a second, we never use that word for anything but this unique people, this, this tribe, nation, this unique people have these things in common for anyone but us. Now James is kind of flipping it and saying this is what God has said. He has pulled together a unique people from all peoples. So that little word would have been incredibly stunning. You and I take this for granted every time. When Trinity sends global workers into all the world, we get excited about that. We get ramped up for that. We can't wait to be involved financially, to be involved in prayer, to be involved in other ways of support. We don't think twice about, well, can you go and bring the gospel to that people? We just get excited because we know that Jesus came for the entire world. Now, James grounds his decision based on a quote from Amos, how even all the Gentiles who bear my name, and, and the thing I want you to know today, that's a powerful quote that he uses, but man, he could have used dozens of quotes all over the former covenant in all the way back to Deuteronomy, all the way back to Genesis, all throughout the Psalms and said, look, Messiah in Isaiah, the prophet, it's too small of thing for Messiah to come only for the, for the house of Israel. He's coming for the world. So this is just the particular quote that he uses. What we see is we see Paul and Barnabas were passionate about the Jerusalem council, seeing the way that God was working all around the world for the benefit of the nations to be able to hear and respond to the gospel apart from becoming Jewish, apart from that proselyte process. Instead, it was simply all about Jesus crucified and risen again by grace through faith. But they also wanted that kind of posture and decision, not just for the nations, but those that they were doing life with in their community, those in their relational world, the people that lived, they'd lived across the street from, the people that they worked with, the people that they would buy from in the marketplace. They wanted all people everywhere to hear this great news of what Jesus had done for them. And I want you to know that the pastoral staff and ministry team here at Trinity 
we have that heart to do what James goes on to say, this, this verse that has really just been so profound in my life, probably over the last 16 years when I heard it at a conference that I went to just explained so clearly. The phrase we've even said here at Trinity before, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult for the people in your relational world who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult for the people that you work with who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult for the people in your extended family who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult for people who aren't yet re ready to gather with other groups in this COVID season. That's why we're doing services just like this. We shouldn't make it difficult for them who are turning to God. And I want to give you this guarantee that your pastors and your ministry directors here at Trinity Church fully embrace this concept of majoring on the majors and not including a whole lot of details and a whole lot of minors that would keep the people in your relational world from wanting to know more who, who are interested, who are turning to Jesus. And I love that we can make that commitment to you and that's our part of the partnership that we'll stay committed to. Now, after much has uh, been made about the idea that salvation wasn't connected by obeying the law, why does James feel the need to attach anything to the decision, but just that Gentiles ought to put their faith in the risen Jesus? Why wouldn't that be enough? When James could just finish it there, we believe that they come to faith in Jesus just like we do done. He goes on, and it's kind of almost confusing, like, wait a second, if it's Jesus alone, why'd you add these four things? And this is really important. I want you to catch this today because he knew that the decisions made within the body of Christ are never about which side won, but always how can we keep loving one another and working together like family does? That's always the goal. And that often plays itself out with a heightened sense of thoughtfulness and sensitivity towards the concerns and values of one another. You see, outside of the command to steer clear from sexual immorality, that command is given all over the New Testament, the other directives were not meant to cause challenge and angst to the Jewish Christians that had already placed their faith in Jesus, as well as to create an opportunity for those still unbelieving Jews that would have such a problem if Gentiles were to do those things and even want to hear anything that they say after that. It, it took the boulder out of the road so there could be a pathway that not only the current Jews who had put their faith in Christ, but even those who had not yet, there wouldn't be a stumbling block in the way. I especially like the observation that John Stott makes concerning this decision in that this, in that it secured a double victory, a victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace and a victory of love in preserving the fellowship by sensitive concessions to conscientious Jewish scruples. I think he just sums that up so incredibly well. This is what we do for one another still today. And we'll get there as we look in this series about how in Romans 14 and 15, we make conscientious decisions. I am gonna actually engage this or disengage from that. Why? Because I love you. Because I love you more than the liberties I'm going to express. And so we'll get into that more later on, but I'm excited to look at that with you in this series. Finally today, number three in your notes, <clears throat> joy follows when we major on the majors. 
I so much love the way this chapter ends. Joy follows when we major on the majors. Let's read the rest for now of of Acts 15. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. So go and read this to the church at Antioch. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. There we go. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. This is such a great passage, and I love even just the the obvious joy that this group of believers in Antioch uh, expressed and felt when they heard this great news. People everywhere are saved by faith in Jesus alone. That was the message of this letter. And the people uh, that were turning to God in Antioch were so glad for its encouraging message. Men, we understand, were especially excited about the news that no longer was circumcision required. And then as they heard of these four concessions of how they ought to live in conscientious thoughtfulness towards their Jewish brothers and sisters who were in Christ or even those who had not yet put their faith in Christ. These were really considered a win at the end of the day that that's what the decision was. And I want you to notice this. Notice the collaboration of voices who signed off on this decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What a powerful phrase. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. A question for you to think about today, how did they know the Holy Spirit had spoken? How did they know it was good to the Holy Spirit? How could, was that just something they guessed at, just something they assumed? I want to give you a thought today because the great sense of understanding that the witnesses had shared with this assembled council because we know there were two very divisive sides to what was being brought to this. And the fact that there was unity in the decision to move forward with a model that didn't demand Gentiles to become Jewish, but to respond to the same gospel based on the same faith that others in the early church had. You see, I'll tell you from the collective decisions I've been a part of in 28 years of ministry, there's a real obvious sense when the Spirit is involved and when He's not. Look in your notes. The Spirit's presence is obvious when church members are responding to one another in love and kindness and respect of each other's concerns and thoughts. 
How do you know if it was pleasing to the Holy Spirit? I think so often it relates to what was the attitude, what was the tone, and, and did they continue to demonstrate the evidence or the fruit of the Spirit as they were in collective discourse? Did they treat each other with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with faithfulness, and self-control? That evidence of the Spirit is one of the ways that we know that the Spirit is there among us and is in this. So the next time that you're wondering if the Spirit is giving guidance and direction to the challenging issues that you're facing, especially when it's in community and it's something of great import, just look around you and see if the characteristics that demonstrate His presence and character are being evidenced by those in the conversation. It's pretty easy to assume that if they're not there, then the Spirit isn't either. For those of you that are aware of the things going on and what we're dealing with as a church right now, I would tell you that for me, and though I have seen incredible evidence of this on the elder board, of a great sense of those gifts of the Spirit, for me there are some decisions and ways I have acted recently that have not demonstrated these well. That was part of the opportunity last night to be able to take account for that. And I look forward to, in the days to come, in working together with the elder board, working together with the pastoral staff, demonstrating these qualities well and consistently. This passage is a beautiful picture and model for us at Trinity Church the next time that we face as a church an issue worth dividing over. Watch this, that we work it out in community, that we not be postured where there are winners who take the spoils and losers who simply are defeated and where that we make concessions towards one another in order to maintain our fellowship together. And the simple question, why? Why would we do that? Because that's how it works in a family. That's how a family functions and operates. I want to finish today by sharing an incredibly sad irony in the middle of this passage of all this work to keep and maintain unity and work together Acts 15 has the irony of all ironies that two that battled together for this great decision of how the Gentiles would be saved part company in the very same chapter. Look at how this ends. Acts 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them on their first trip in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. You get the irony of everything we've talked about today. And Paul and Barnabas were kind of um, representing the same view and so as they come to this Jerusalem council and bring this view of how the Gentiles really can and should be included in the family of God simply by faith, and they've seen it, they've lived it, we even saw earlier, James said, and they've risked their life for our Lord Jesus Christ. They have done these things together, and yet at the end of the day, a conflict, a relational conflict had nothing to do with theology, nothing to even do necessarily with ministry philosophy, but all about loyalty and person. They decide to break company. 
commentators look at this passage in Acts 15 and don't necessarily assign blame to each other as though they were in sin. It was more of, we've came to it, we have come to a point, a crossroads, we don't know how to go on further together, and we divided. Now, by the way, if you know the rest of the story, they divided to go on. Paul takes Silas and goes on his second missionary journey. Barnabas takes John Mark and does amazing ministry in Crete. So neither of them are kicked to the curb and ministry is done. It's just ministry is done differently. My hope and prayer at Trinity Church is that we can recover even from relational uh, potential division. And that's what we're praying for, we're working on. And the elder board, I think, is just doing a great job of saying that's our hope and prayer moving forward. So uh, my hope and prayer is that you be praying for that with us, and we look forward to what God's going to continue to do. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today with a, a passage from the book of Acts that is so powerful, so timely, so fitting, so incredibly um, just needed and incredibly um, just valuable for us as a church. As we anticipate, as we begin to process, God, what does this mean for us? What does this mean moving forward? How can we be a group of people that it's obvious among us that when we have hard conversations, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is obvious because of the way we treat one another, because of the conclusions that we come to, because we're a people who are able to say, this is what matters, this matters less, this doesn't matter at all. So God, give us the grace to understand and have these kind of convictions in the uh, appropriate types of categories. Help us know what's worth dividing over and help us know what's worth fighting for together, that we'd contend together and be a group of people who'd continue to demonstrate, like we've seen today, an incredibly family love for one another. God, that's our hope and prayer. If you're watching with us today, and we've talked so much about this great news that came to the um, uh, church at Antioch, people who had come to Christ because they realized their need for him, and they realized his amazing love for them. You might be watching today, and you've come to the place where you've realized, I have that same need. I've never responded to the great news of Jesus. And I want to tell you before you do anything else today, right where you are, you can A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe that Jesus is the only savior available. And C, choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I'm gonna put my confidence, my hope, my trust, not in what I can do to somehow be a good moral person, but what you've already done for me at the cross and the empty tomb. I pray you wouldn't let another moment go by before you make that decision to respond to this great news that this council helped clarify for us 2,000 years ago that this is what matters and this is our way to responding to Jesus. Father, we love you. Would you continue to be so absolutely present, so absolutely powerful in our midst? Thank you for being so great. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.